The Federal Innovator Podcast is brought to you by Accenture and produced by Government Executive Media Group Studio 2G. Change is all around us and happening at light speed. At Accenture, we see change as a constant source of energy and inspiration, and we're helping deliver the change that matters right now with bold thinking, tried and tested innovation, the best in technology, and a tireless focus on people. Learn more about how Accenture can help your federal agency put change to work and meet your mission. Visit AccentureFederal.com. As I'm sure you're feeling deep in your innovation bones, government agencies are navigating an accelerated tech landscape. It's managing increased customer demand and IT modernization. And they really require innovative ways to keep up and to adapt. And much of that adaption is really going to require, you know, breaking convention and stepping outside of the usual boxes of government tech acquisition and processes. So when you're looking for novel, unexpected ways to create value, you know, it's really less about inserting technology and it's more about putting humans at the center uh, as an additional uh, important point of orientation. That's right. Agencies today are looking away from traditional methods and instead tapping strategy prototyping to solve problems in new ways and prepare for the future of work. So how do they explore what's possible from a human-centric perspective? while keeping an eye on mission? And how do agencies balance exploring what's new versus the safe and reliable delivery expectations required of government? And that's what we're here to discuss today on The Federal Innovator. It's a podcast for and about the innovators that are taking on the biggest challenges in the federal government and making change that is more human, simple, and enduring. You know, ultimately we all have responsibilities as um, designers and innovators and technologists to simplify the complex. And there really is no more complex machine than the federal government. I'm your host, Tim Irvin, Managing Director and Studio Lead of the Accenture Federal Digital Studio. And I'm Stephanie Wander, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council Geotech Center. Joining us to discuss those issues is Ryan Vega, Chief Officer of Healthcare and Innovation and Learning at the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Ryan, uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thanks so much for having me today. Ryan, how is it that you found yourself in this role? Tell us a little bit about your background. My background, uh, practicing academic hospitalists, so providing care to patients when they're admitted to the hospital and working with medical students and residents. And I I got actually into the VA through a program called the Chief Resident for Quality and Safety. So my journey into innovation certainly is not one that I predicted, but I did sort of stumble my way into innovation through a number of different opportunities that that I was really lucky to have. One of those where I think I really gained an appreciation for human-centered design and user-centered design was while I was at the VCU Health System, helping to deploy a customized solution within the electronic medical record that really optimized both provider handoffs and provider rounding by really affording what I would call personalized clinical decision support. So it was the recognition that a group of orthopedic surgeons need very, very different data when they're rounding on patients or they're handing patients off than perhaps the folks in the pediatric ICU. And while the electronic medical record was able to provide laboratory and vital data sort of in a consistent fashion, it wasn't really customized for the user in a way that it's meaningful for them that allows both efficiency and effectiveness within their workflows, allows them to better deliver care. 
And I think that was really my introduction, not only into how do you scale innovations across health systems, but really how do you solve problems by bringing in that sort of requirements gathering or in the HCD language, empathetic interviewing. So my journey sort of maybe wasn't all serendipitous, uh, but I've certainly been been very fortunate to find new opportunities and fortunate every day to sort of wake up and continue to serve our veterans across the country. Thanks, Ryan, for that incredible background. Um, and I'm just really impressed with your work in, in addressing electronic medical records and, and addressing data differently. Um, I'm curious, it sounds like you've touched on innovation in a number of ways through your work. What are some of the other innovations that, that you're working on currently that you're most proud of right now? For me, what innovation is truly about, it's about the creation of value, meaningful value, either for the patient or for the workforce. Value in and of itself is very multidimensional. So you can't create value and, and value for the patient at the full expense of deterioration on the value sort of horizon for the workforce, because you'll eventually have burnout and no providers to sort of care for those patients. So it's a tricky thing. And I think we often fall into the trap of being so consumed with day-to-day operations and obsessions with things like ROI that we don't fully appreciate the importance of value creation and value drivers. So within that that spectrum, uh, there's a whole host of things that I think are really, to me, sort of driving and creating value for veterans. The first one that comes to top of mind is 3D printing. 3D printing is this amazing technology, and let me expand a little bit. It's really additive manufacturing. It's really an amazing capability and technology that allows us to deliver personalized care. So this could be custom orthotics and prosthetics. So instead of us choosing the small, medium, or large insert off the shelf, we're going to custom manufacture one for you at the point of care. Meaning I don't have to worry about ordering it. I can produce it within the walls of the hospital and give it to you the same day. Pre-surgical planning or even planning within the hospital. What it's also groundbreaking that, that very proud to see some of my colleagues in VA take a role in is it biofabrication. Within our lifetime, we will see the production uh, and the implantation of organs that were fabricated through additive technology and, and traditionally this, this notion of biofabrication. We will create bone and living tissues. In addition to the great innovations you've been helping to drive, I've also heard that you've innovated around equity and inclusion, particularly in relation to patient care. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So another practice that I'm really prideful of, and, and, and no pun intended, it's actually called PRIDE. It is a 10-week course that two of our leaders in the VA, Tiffany and Michelle, created specifically around helping veterans who identify as LGBTQT navigate some of the complexity and really some of the challenges that these veterans face in navigating healthcare. Now, as a provider myself, I don't remember, and it's because it didn't happen, conversations when I was in clinical training or medical school around how do you have a conversation with a 60-year-old male that identifies as female around prostate cancer screening? And so what we traditionally do is just avoid these conversations, or we don't ask. We don't bring it up. And the same thing goes for the patient. They don't feel perhaps necessarily comfortable having these conversations, or we don't even know how to start the conversation. And so what they did through this course was to bring veterans together, like veterans together, to really begin not only the dialogue, but to begin creating practice patterns, helping to inform clinicians. How do you bring it up? How do you talk through these? How do you sort of vocalize 
you know, this is who I am. And these are the things that matter to me. And these are the conversations I want to have, but I'm, I'm nervous about having these conversations with you. And so what's amazing about this is that we actually have been able to track real clinical outcomes. We're actually able to measure reductions in suicidality. We're actually able to re- measure reductions in generalized anxiety on, on, on the GAD uh, questionnaire assessment. We're seeing better senses of belonging. And what's remarkable is that veterans who live 50, 60, sometimes even further miles from the VA that offer these courses, driving those distances to come because for the first time, they feel part of a community. They feel accepted and, and they want to care for themselves. But these are hard conversations to start. Uh, and so giving them the opportunity to do so in very safe spaces with other veterans who are experiencing the same challenges uh, is something that we're seeing and, and it's growing quite rapidly. As you talk about Tiffany and Michelle and how that uh, how the pride uh, effort went from pilot to to scale, one of the things that I'm really curious about is how have you built kind of that organizational fitness around innovation so um, so that you know folks like Tiffany and Michelle um, are are compelled to engage and then expand on um, you know things that you know great ideas and and personal passion. So how does it go beyond the you know special provenance of a focus group into something that can be um, distributed and people are encouraged to uh, to engage and and continue to create that value that you're speaking of? We like to think of innovation as a learning process. And I think if you really look at it, from a true academic sense, it has to be embraced as a learning process, which means that it is cyclical, it's ongoing, and and learning is something that is supported. Learning is something that you have to empower. Learning is something that has to be a capability. And when you start to view it in that framework, it means organizationally, you have to have the infrastructure to enable that to happen. Ryan, I'm really curious um, how you, like, where did you hit a challenge in that process? Where were the biggest sort of bottlenecks to building that innovation culture for you? I mean, I'm thinking about the VA and, and how it's really about innovation in a high stakes environment. How do you, how do you help people buy into taking that leap that innovation is a way to go, that you can pull it off in government at the VA? And then ultimately, where did you, where did you have the biggest list in terms of putting these cultures in place? I think one of the biggest challenges, particularly when we look at innovation in healthcare, is, is a question that I hear often, and I hear not just from within government. How do you fund and sustain these types of activities? And, and it's, it's hard because the day-to-day operations will always consume the next crisis, right? And I think I've learned, never underestimate the power of a network and what a network can do to sort of mobilize a large organization. And so a lot of this was by finding those early adopters, those champions within the field, and really just beginning to build the network, build that sort of drumbeat of excitement and and people that were going to be resilient. You know, you start with the grassroots movement um, and you let those networks sort of grow and learn from one another. And the voice of that network, I think, can help really shape and mobilize a lot. And then you have to have what I believe is sort of this continuous push of demonstrating the value that you are creating. And I can't overstate this enough, but oftentimes, because of the work you, you know, that you do in innovation, it's challenging 
it's hard. It's, sometimes it's frustrating. Uh, and you, you have to be resilient and, and sort of continuously showing, even if you aren't projecting some massive ROI in the next year, right? How are you continuously helping to push the way that veterans, and in my case, veterans, but you know, if I'm relating this to the private sector patients, you know, their experience, improving outcomes for them, and in, in essence, sort of reducing costs um, on the back end. So I, I think it's about just continuing that drumbeat and never really giving up. Thank you for that, Ryan. That, that was it's pretty incredible. Can you speak to how you navigate the tension between an openness to risk and, and failure inherent to the innovation process? Failure is okay. You can learn what didn't work. You can learn how to get better next time. Uh, but particularly the idea of holding on to legacy projects, holding on to legacy innovations just eats up bandwidth. It eats up capital. Um, and a lot of times it sort of eats at the culture because people aren't willing to explore or drive further. So I think by de-risking, by pushing things through a stage of maturation and allowing things to fail and fall off and then move things through sort of this pipeline, and by equally and sort of flipping the value paradigm and saying, we're going to really focus more in the early stages of development. What is the impact of the workflow or the patient experience? How does this conform? Is, is this innovation accessible? Is it affordable? Is it even practical? Really thinking through those and then pushing those through in terms of as you're going through maturation, what happens is, is that when you get to something that's ready to go to market or in essence scale, you've got a solution that hasn't only been tested right through multiple different lenses, but the adoption curve is going to be substantially easier than force functioning something into the workflow that will have a dramatic impact on productivity or that you'll see slowing of adoption because folks don't really want to acquiesce to it. Yeah, Ryan, what you're talking about really sounds to me like it epitomizes strategic prototyping. And I'd love to maybe see if you have a couple examples of projects that you've put through your pipeline process and, and the criteria that you use to say, yes, this one moves forward. No, this one doesn't. Because um, I think it's, it's, it's easy to imagine and say in principle, but when you're faced with that decision, it can be really gripping. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we really try to embrace the, the core components of human-centered design, particularly empathetic interviewing, to really drive the, the problem ideation and then having diversity of opinion from individuals who I think span different, I'll say academic backgrounds and then patients themselves. So bringing in engineers, biomedical engineers in some case with clinicians, with patients, with administrators, sometimes that diversity of opinion, when you recognize the complexity of how early stage prototypes may evolve into a solution, I think that really helps shape both the prototyping and then also the end product. There's a couple of, of practices or products that we've been involved in, and these aren't our own inventions, but they're practices or solutions that we've been heavily involved in. I'm going to sort of talk about the first one, because I think to your point, this epitomizes sort of the notion of the focusing on practicality of a solution in the prototype is so important to getting it right. In 2007 and 2008, there were a couple of studies that came out that talked about the idea of measuring temperature differentiations in the foot for patients with diabetic as an ability to detect ulcer formation early on. The individual sort of held this 
thermometer-esque type of device to their feet in multiple different patterns and then did it to the other foot and that data was captured and uploaded, et cetera. It's never really took off. But there was an individual, an anesthesiologist, whose dad happens to be a veteran, who was, you know, operating day after day and watching sort of clinicians take a foot off, take a leg off from diabetic ulcers or complications of diabetes or vascular disease and sort of wondering why modern medicine hadn't evolved further. And they stumbled upon these papers that were published five, six years before and said, this is really interesting. But, you know, the prototype that they developed really wasn't practical. That's kind of hard for somebody to use that every single day. What if you took that technology and put it into a floor mat? We can all stand on a floor mat. So what they began to do was to prototype the solution with patients, with clinicians, and figure out how to take an invention that had sort of sat on the shelf for a number of years and make it practical. And as they begin to prototype the solution, what they begin to recognize is how do you take it a step further? So not only how do you have a mat, but how do you have the mat in the patient's home? And how do you have the mat have the capability to transmit the data wirelessly? And then how do you have the mat have the capability to learn patterns and to learn patterns, not just from one patient, but patterns from multiple patients and then to create a system. So what you're seeing is that they're going from prototype to prototype. What they're obsessing about is not only the product improvement, but they're obsessing about how do you make this not only accessible and affordable, but meaningful and practical. Because yes, you could have a mat and it could store the data and then you'd have to plug something in, retrieve the data and bring it to your veteran. Is that really going to have maximum utilization? So the story here is that through various different prototypes, while you're, you're focusing on the actual improvement of the, the product itself, you have to also be obsessed with sort of some of the other inputs and byproducts of the actual product or solution. So not only focusing on how the prototype itself functions, but the processes around that particular prototype and how you can improve those processes. So data transmission, right? This is a, a mat that's designed to detect temperature differentiations in the feet. They weren't thinking in prototype one, how do we optimize the mat's ability to send data wirelessly? They wanted to make sure that they got the ability to detect temperature variation in the feet correctly. So as you continue to go through various prototypes, right, you're also improving the process. And that's where the genius of the innovations come into play. Uh, and I think that's really important to, to folks who are going through sort of the early stage startup, they're doing the prototyping is yes, improving the product is important, but then thinking of all of the other associated, and I use the word interoperability very, very broadly here, right? How systems interop, not just sort of how maybe two electronic records talk to one another. But being obsessed with that and, and really thinking through, because that's what makes the product better and better and better. That's what makes the experience of using the product better. And that's really where you get sort of the magic uh, between product adoption and then product failure in essence. And I think just to take the same lens and, and to view it from something you know, that didn't necessarily play out as well, we saw this with sort of in-house development of remote monitoring for patients with sleep apnea. 
And while the product itself continued to get better, the ability to store the data, the ability to make it seamless, the ability for it to alert the patient that something was wrong, right? Having the provider have to log in, get an alert, see that there was an alert and call the veteran, not automating all of those things really led to a fall of the adoption. And while the product itself may have continuously gotten better, it's all the processes around that impact adoption and utilization. That's where you sort of, I think, the magic lies. And so I think when you're going through prototyping, that has to be the lens by which you view it. Is yes, you've got to make your product better, but you also have to be obsessed with the processes that will lead to the efficiency of adoption or the effectiveness of the outcomes that you hope to achieve. Ryan, one thing uh, that comes to mind as you talk about um, kind of broadly about interoperability and, and the prototyping that have inherent, um, uh, I would imagine, requirements of, of uh, you know, a, a very diverse multidisciplinary team. How, how have you created an environment where you've got engineers thinking like artists and you've got uh, designers kind of using that empathy, not just for, um, you know, a veteran, but for a team member? Uh, thinking about uh, playing to individual strengths and and uh, maybe creating a uh, an environment that feels a bit like a creative scrum of, of very differently intelligent people. I'm curious. Maybe, maybe this gets back to the to the topic of culture a bit, but I'm curious how you've navigated that. So teams are kind of checking their um, maybe degrees at the door and and really kind of bringing the best of uh, many different disciplines together at simultaneously. I think that's a hard nut to crack. And, and I think it takes a lot of purposeful exercises to not only how you evolve the culture, but we've, you know, we've stumbled along the way, but have, have hit a right chord in a number of different areas. One of the things we have done is we've actually created specific positions in the medical centers. Uh, these are individuals who are known as innovation specialists. And while a lot of them may have backgrounds in improvement or, or backgrounds in health system administration, these are individuals who are really helping to navigate sort of the importance of relationships and that learning exercise that we talked about. So our, all of our investees come from these sort of sites that are part of the innovators network. And what these innovations help these investees do is to bring together those core relationships. So, uh, so again, it's very purposeful. It doesn't happen sort of by accident. I think there's a, there's a forcing function where somebody has a really great idea and you recognize you have somebody who's trained to think about all of the different implications and patterns of implications that may arise. And, hey, we need to bring these folks in. I think they can really help you as you go through the various stages of, of development or in the innovation life cycle. I, I was just going to ask you, Ryan, how has, how has your work at the VA spoiled you for the private sector in the future? That's a good question. So look, one of the things I think I'm so fortunate to have is the opportunity to operate at scale. And I have to think about the complexities of solutions and whether they're going to fit into a market like Alaska as well as Florida. And so that has forced me. And, and, and like I said, you know, two years ago, I could not have this level of conversation with you, right? Um, what this position has, has granted me is the 
everyday challenge of having to learn and read. And it's, it's been quite humbling to just constantly be reminded of how much I don't know. But I think the one thing that, that is, uh, that I've learned and that's important is that, you know, every day you can continuously sort of get better in your approach. You can continuously improve your understanding. Um, and that, that confidence that is continuously built, that resiliency that's continuously developed and hardened by uh, sort of constantly moving through the challenges and the obstacles, you know, you will inevitably make, make a difference or make an impact. So we've covered a, a ton of ground and I, am really grateful with the, your expertise and really grateful for your time today, Ryan. Pleasure to be on with you all and, and just happy to share the successes and the experiences that we're having at VA. I think this work, uh, it's gotten a lot of attention and deservedly so. There's hundreds of individuals uh, who are certainly responsible and, and for me to just be a small part of, of their team and uh, their successes is, is both a humbling and just uh, something I'll always be uh, grateful for. Thank you. Lots, lots of great stuff to dig in and, and, and hope to stay in touch with you and, and follow your incredible work. Okay, well, I really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you for the opportunity. That was incredible. I, uh, I mean, when you think about the biggest healthcare system in the world, and then you think about a nuanced expression around innovation and building a learning organization, uh, I thought that was fantastic. Tim, I'm really curious on your take about something that he said, which is that he talked about sort of the, the one of the secrets to scaling being about having innovation at, at the grassroots level. And, and I would imagine that's maybe a bit of a tension point between leadership and leadership directed initiatives in government versus grassroots endeavors. Mm-hmm. And what do you think it takes to, as you're thinking about how you coach leaders to, to enable that grassroots innovation and to do it, you know, across potentially many lines of, you know, managers and, and large operating structures? Yeah. In, in hierarchical um, uh, structures, it, it can be, or, or if not difficult, daunting. Um, so, you know, I, I would go back to kind of, you know, a realization or recognition that uh, all of us are smarter than any one of us. So I think when you have a commitment to um, looking for great ideas anywhere and incenting, you know, ultimately a learning organization, which is really what Ryan was describing in the VA, it's, it's a, they're building a culture and an infrastructure that enables, you know, folks on the front line to, um, you know, to do things that are not just in isolation. They can see the problem and they can have an opinion and that opinion can be shared by a number of people, which then kind of takes on a life of its own. I mean, ultimately you're inviting people to participate in the mission of the company. And I think one of the beautiful things about um, operating in the federal space is that it's, it's entirely mission driven. Like these are big problems that need to be solved to affect many, many, many people. And, and so I think being able to listen to, an individual at a very junior level, you know, perhaps, and giving them a forum to be heard, be supported, and to affect change at, at you know, at a significant level. I think that is, um, that's a game changer. And I think um, organizations and leaders uh, would do well uh, to heed that ultimately, and recognize that it's in everyone's best interest, that you're serving people that, you know, have a passion and um, and when you align, you know, your purpose and your mission with theirs as individuals, um, that is an incredible multiplier uh, for, you know, anybody operating in, 
you know, with any kind of hope to operate in kind of an innovation realm. I mean, my major takeaway from this whole interview was that for, for, for Ryan, innovation is deeply personal, right? It's, it's human. It's everything from, you know, engaging in continuous learning to building a team that has resilience to leveraging and trusting your team to cultivating, you know, young talent um, to collaboration. Um, it was all about things like empowerment, capability, and and I think those things are are easy to say, and they're really hard to sometimes develop in culture. And so I was really excited to hear that, and I think and it was one of those things that struck me as as really true. One of those tension points, like as we say, where where it's where it's sort of right, where you're like, yes, that's really what innovation takes to succeed is great cultivation of people. But it's so hard to do in reality. And I can only imagine that given some of the operational constraints and the environment he's in, that that's very difficult. So I have to say that kind of honestly, you know, uh, really shocked and, and surprised me. And it, as we as we talk about a, a commitment to um, to kind of learning and lifelong learning and, and really accelerating kind of perspectives pulled from any different part of the organization, I think one of the highest compliments, honestly, you could. Uh, you could uh, give someone is to say this, this person is cultivating a learning organization because that is, that is, there's a baked in resilience associated with that, which I find, you know, really compelling. And it was very much top of mind uh, with Ryan. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think that that question, and if you can make that a part of your culture and a part of your leadership culture and, and the organization that you build, it really, I think, gives you the framework for all the right ingredients. So, so Tim, one other thing that just, I, I wanted to really shout out Ryan's work at the VA for, which is, um, I think the incredible depth and consideration that they've given to their LGBT, LGBTQIA community. Um, it's, again, it's one of those topics that's not easy, but I, I know from working with the social work community that because of the VA's reach and because of their influence in the medical community, um, overall, that they've really had, I think, an outsized impact in improving the standard of care. Uh, for diverse communities. And I think that's really needs to be, be highlighted and acknowledged. Excellent point. I mean, particularly, particularly when you talk about building an inclusive environment, I mean, like, and you gotta be, you gotta be thinking about that from your employees and the, and the people they serve, like this all comes back. I mean, to purpose, like, why, why do you exist? I mean, it's caring for the whole person. If you don't recognize, if you don't recognize, you know, your multiple constituents and recognize their humanity, then you're just leaving a lot behind. Oh, you know, yeah. That, I love that point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's really, really the key message from Ryan today is, is how do we really think about, you know, keeping the human at the center? So thank you, Tim. This is an awesome opportunity. Thank you for listening into this episode of The Federal Innovator. Please stay tuned for more episodes as we explore additional topics on and around innovation in the federal landscape. Thank you for listening to The Federal Innovator, brought to you by Accenture. At Accenture, we're helping the federal government do the extraordinary things it takes to create a better future for everyone. See how we're delivering this new future faster. Visit AccentureFederal.com to learn more.